Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome back. I'm glad you're all joining me to look at the first episode of my favorite Star Trek series to date, Deep Space Nine, Emissary. Wolf 359. Resistance is futile. Man, we start off big. The battle for Sector 001, and the first voice we hear is Locutus, Picard. We meet our captain for this series as Lieutenant Commander Sisko, first officer of the USS Saratoga. And man, they are getting rocked by the Borg. Shields have failed! Full reverse! The captain pre-Martok, goes down and it is pandemonium. Sisko goes looking for his wife and son. He finds his son, but is pried away from his now dead wife, Jennifer. They get to the escape pods, and we fast forward three years. Now, Commander Sisko meets with his son, Jake, to discuss his new assignment at Deep Space Nine. Jake's apprehensive, but Sisko hears him out, shows him the station, and gets him excited for the change beautiful look at the station, and we see the Enterprise is docked. Sisko gives some exposition about the Bajoran Provisional Government, and then we meet Chief O'Brien, a transfer from the Enterprise. Sisko walks with O'Brien as he explains that the Cardassians totally trashed the place on their way out. I'm told the Cardassians decided to have some fun the day they left. Why hasn't anybody cleaned this up? Now this hits on a few leadership lessons right away. First, you might have heard of it before, but management by walking around. This is an approach that's exactly what it sounds like. Management by walking around. Walk around, talk to your teams, meet with them. This used to be at the core of the HP way when Hewlett Packard was a much younger company. It allows for meaningful conversations about the work, the teams, or the individuals are doing. And in this case, O'Brien is able to show Cisco what's going on instead of just talking to him about it. It also allows the manager to connect the workers to other experts. This creates networks and that can better expand knowledge bases. This is also a great example of a Gemba walk, a term used in Lean Six Sigma. This is a methodology that relentlessly seeks to eliminate waste. In Japanese, and please forgive my pronunciation, but Gemba is the place. Often a reporter will be on site reporting from the Gemba. Here, Cisco is in the Gemba with O'Brien, experiencing his challenges with him. O'Brien acknowledges the chain of command. He lets Cisco know he's already discussed this with Major Kira. She's the attache from the provisional government. We're also introduced to one of the aspects of this show that really makes it unique in Trek. Religion. Cisco runs into a Bajoran that invites him to enter a temple as the prophets await him. 
He puts it off to a later time. O'Brien lets Sisko know that Captain Picard wants to meet with him as Jake walks around talking about what a dump the station is. Well, we're going to have to rough it. Some really cool imagery at play here. The lighting is generally dark, a stark contrast to the brightly lit Enterprise from the next generation. There's also the uniforms. Cisco is in the traditional TNG uniform we've come to know, while O'Brien and other Starfleet Station personnel are in these black jumpers. O'Brien's sleeves are rolled up. He's got a lot of work in front of him. We're introduced to Kira, another total contrast to TNG. Here's a woman with authority that's comfortable using it. Very strong personality that Cisco counters by lowering his voice and inviting her to dictate the tone and the tempo of the conversation. But we could do it in any order you'd like. She just lays it out on the line. She compares Starfleet to the Cardassian occupation. I don't believe the Federation has any business being here. We learn that she's been a resistance fighter her whole life. Cisco, he pushes right back. His tone changes a little, almost imperceptibly, to add authority to it. He acknowledges her concerns, but insists that he is here to help. She then takes off to address a security incident and says he doesn't need to bother coming along. Cisco grins and he takes right off after her. He's demonstrating that he's one of the team. He's not afraid to do what it takes to get the job done. A thief with some D&D weapons in Star Trek introduces us to Odo, a shapeshifter that is head of station security. Another abrasive personality that isn't afraid of standing up to Cisco. Who the hell are you? A Ferengi, Quark, comes out and pleads for the release of his nephew as they're leaving the station tomorrow. Cisco, standing up for the law and order that he sees in DS9's vision, sends the Ferengi thief to the brig. He then explains to Kira that he's holding on to the boy, Nog, as a bargaining chip to be used with Quark in the future. Cisco finally heads up to meet with Captain Picard. Come. Talk about contrast to TNG. Star Trek fans have been accustomed to people showing deference and respect to Picard. Not Cisco. He calls him right out for Wolf 359 and blames him for the death of his wife. I was on the Saratoga at Wolf 359. Picard, the eternal diplomat, pivots right into discussing Cisco's assignment. Cisco talks business, but he doesn't let down his resentment. He's not being unprofessional here, he's being authentic. Authenticity, it's such a critical facet of being an effective leader, being the real you. People don't want to follow an automaton, they want to follow a person. Cisco holds to his feelings, he's authentic and isn't afraid of voicing his true feelings. We learn that Cisco has objected to this assignment very much on the grounds of the safety concerns for his son, Jake. He goes so far as to consider resigning his commission. In this case, Cisco's authenticity here gets Picard to start considering a replacement. He's getting what he wants because, because he stood up for himself, but, in big but, he's still a professional about it. In the meantime, I will do the job to the best of my ability. Cisco meets up with Quark and he lays out the deal. You stay on board, reopen the casino, and become a community leader. Revitalize the promenade. What a great vision. His people need morale boosters, personal lives, and he sees the leadership and the potential in Quark to provide that. He plays to Quark's personality to get it done. But then you are a gambler, Quark. He also threatens to keep Nog in prison for a very long time if, if he doesn't comply. Kind of a carrot stick, you know? You choose, Quark. It's up to you. Cisco's kind of all over the station as we cut around here, and he joins Kira on the promenade, back on the Gemba, he rolls up his sleeves and he starts helping to clean up. 
Kira talks about the tenuous hold the provisional government has and that she thinks it'll fall within the week. She tells us about the spiritual leader of Bajor, Kai Opaka, that she's the only one that could call for unity and bring stability to Bajor. So Cisco heads down to the planet to meet with her. They sit down and whoa, whoa, she, <laughs> she goes right for his ear. Come on, I mean, maybe shake hands first, something. Don't touch me! Well, Cisco tentatively lets her touch it while she talks about the Bajoran life force, the Pa. She calls him the emissary, takes him into a secret compound. Here, she shows Cisco a tier of the prophets. There were nine, and only this one remains. The Cardassians have the other ones. Cisco suddenly finds himself on a beach, meeting his wife for the first time. He relives the memory, and we get to see what a smooth operator looks like. We also get to see the terrible turn men's uh, swimwear will take in the 24th century. Hmm. Well, then the tear appears again, and he is ripped back into reality. Opaka talks about the celestial temple where the prophets live, and charges Sisko with finding it before the Cardassians do. And to show she's serious, she gives Sisko the tear. We get a touching moment between Sisko and Jake as he remembers his wife. This is really Trek doing what it does best, showing a much more ideal future. How often do we see single fathers with great relationships with their kids on TV? This is really, really well done. On the promenade, Quark has made his choice. First big win for Sisko. People are drinking, gambling, and having a good time. Starfleet and Bajoran personnel are hanging out together. He's successfully built a foundation, a, a home base, for all of his people. We meet Dr. Bashir and Lieutenant Dax. Continuing the theme of contrasts, Bashir tries to hit on Dax. A Benjamin Sisko, he is not. I heard you like whales, so do you want to go humpback at my place? Dax is a trill, a joined species where a symbiont with a very long lifespan lives in different people over their lifespans. Sisko is friends with the prior host and calls Dax old man. Bashir blatantly insults Kira by calling Bajor the, 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 the frontier in the wilderness. He's not making any friends here on DS9. Kira doesn't let it lie and rubs it in his face. We're really building Kira and Sisko as as well-balanced opposites, balanced in their integrity and their authenticity. These are two people that are very, very comfortable with, with who they are. An appropriate passing of the torch as O'Brien leaves the Enterprise. You have to remember that this is the first new Trek since The Next Generation came onto the air. Picard comes to see him off. This is your favorite transporter room, isn't it? Wow. He must have had the most boring job on the Enterprise, if that's Picard's big goodbye for him. I don't believe it. I tore my pants. Still, seeing Picard send him off sent the right tone and helped legitimize O'Brien as a leading role for DS9. In an ominous moment, Immediately after the Enterprise departs, we meet the previous Cardassian prefect of Bajor, Gold Dukat. Dukat. The ultimate villain. Slimy, confident, politically savvy, and eerily charismatic. Sisko's not intimidated by him at all. Dukat says he's aware Opaka gave him an orb, 
um, and offers an information exchange. They'll share info on the other eight if they can have access to this one. Cisco plays it close to the vest and says he doesn't know anything about an orb. After all, to him, it's a tear of the prophets. Dax has been studying the orbs and Bajoran history. She points to the Denorius belt where five of the orbs were found. Her analysis suggests the celestial temple may be there. Cisco's military strategy comes through. He acknowledges the Cardassians are close and will be watching, so he needs a way to get past them undetected. Kira shuts down Quarks. Quark gives the Cardassians a bag to put their gambling winnings into. Once on the ship, we see the bag is... Odo? Now that he's infiltrated the Cardassian ship, he can shut down the sensors while Sisko and Dax get on a runabout, the Rio Grande, and head to the Denorius Belt. They find a wormhole and they head in. Wormhole totally reminds me of the cyber world in Lawnmower Man. I am God here. Well, it takes them into the Gamma Quadrant, the, the other side of the galaxy. Cisco believes they've just discovered the very first stable wormhole. They are slowed down and land on what appears to be a planet inside of it. Cisco and Dax are seeing very different things, even though they're in the same place. An orb appears and seems to take Dax back into ops on DS9. Cisco finds himself having a vision again, this time in the Celestial Temple. I'm going to dive into the experience he has in this vision, but first, he comes into contact with the Prophets. They're non-corporeal beings, such a Star Trek thing. They don't experience time as, as we do. Okay, now, the vision. This, this is incredible. This is such a sci-fi breakdown of how we get into our own heads and hold ourselves back. As the prophets attempt to understand time as Cisco knows it. What is this time? We're taken through his memories and are questioned by what appear to be the people in his life. They're, they're trying to, they're trying to figure him out, but they see him and other corporeal beings as a threat. He initially takes a first contact kind of approach with them. He goes through the platitudes of Starfleet. I'm not your enemy. I come in peace, etc. But, but, but eventually he, he shifts his approach, stating that corporeal beings can best be defined as the sum of their experiences. He attempts to explain linear time and the concept of memories. They really struggle to understand. The epiphany for them comes when they connect the memory of his wife, Jennifer, to him. She is part of your existence. She is part of my past. She's no longer alive. But she is part of your existence. She was a most important part of my existence. They see her as part of his existence. He argues that she's gone and he lost her, but they continue to argue that she's a part of him. Cisco explains the essence of linear existence, each day affecting the next, a progression that leads to the current state and shapes the future. They experience a really special memory when Cisco and Jennifer agree to be together and have kids. But then they take Cisco to the memory of the Saratoga, of finding Jennifer dead. He says, I don't want to be here, but then they reply, Why do you exist here? Why do you exist here? What a great question. More on this in a few. Uh, the, vision, the vision continues. The prophets are beginning to understand and explain that corporeal beings traveling through the wormhole disrupts their existence. This is why they see him and others as a threat. Cisco explains that he and other corporeal beings are aware that every choice has a consequence, but we don't know what it will be. 
He says we use our past experiences to inform and guide us. We learn, we learn that baseball is really important to Cisco and Jake. He uses baseball as a metaphor for linear existence, the, the, the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. We have to anticipate, but be ready to accept what happens. It's a really great metaphor. It's delivered really, really well here. The prophets accept what he says, and they go right back to it. Why do you exist here? They explain again that he keeps pulling them back to the memory on the Saratoga. We do not bring you here. You bring us here. He starts to break down, and he sees what they're saying. Despite the last three years and all he's experienced in that time, He's never let himself move forward from the moment he left Jennifer. He hasn't been in any of his present moments since then, but has lived and existed, staring at her, trapped and dead. Then the prophets drive it home. None of your past experiences help prepare you for this consequence. He agrees. Says he doesn't know how to live without her. This is not linear, they say. He surrenders himself to the moment, and they release him. I remember watching this sequence in the past and honestly being pretty bored by it. I saw it as a poor attempt at really high science fiction, but but watching it through a leadership development lens, man, I loved it. In fact, I really couldn't wait to break it down and analyze it. So I want to look at this from, from a couple different angles, understanding where you exist right now and understanding where your teams exist, both as individual people and as teams themselves. A team a team is an organism in and of itself. It, like Cisco's explanation of corporeal beings, is the sum of its experiences, both good and bad. Does your team celebrate and look forward to each success? Or does it still exist in a bad, negative, or traumatic experience? What's your team's Jennifer moment? Every time I close my eyes, I see her like this. How can you, as a leader, lead them through and forward from that moment? As we see with Cisco, that, that moment must be confronted. Talk about it. Depending on the moment and those involved, maybe even enlist a third-party facilitator to go through it. As we saw with Cisco and the Prophets, failing to address those negative events that teams, or the individuals on your teams, have experienced, will result in the constant existence in that moment. Constantly existing in that moment. And as we also saw with Benjamin, once that moment is acknowledged, you can shift the team's focus to the next big win. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, this lets me talk about one of my favorite leadership aspects, self-awareness. So often we point at others for failures. It's so-and-so's fault this thing didn't happen. If it wasn't for X, I'd have gotten that promotion or that sale or whatever, so on and so on. It's not my fault. The secret, and this is a big one, is to point the finger at yourself. What could you have done differently? We'll be able to dive more deeply into this in future episodes, but for Emissary, this applies to your outlook. Being aware of why you see things the way you do. Benjamin Sisko was ready to resign his commission over his assignment to Deep Space Nine. He wasn't prepared to commit himself to his future or present because he was still living in the moment of his greatest loss. Where are you living? Where do you exist? Once you can answer those questions, confront them, 
and be prepared for a renewed and refreshed outlook, or if nothing else, be prepared to accept your outlook for what it is and where it's coming from. The single most powerful takeaway, at least for me, in this whole sequence, is that the prophets see Cisco's existence in this terrible moment in the present tense. They see it happening right now. You exist here. I exist here. Because it colors every thought, every action, every interaction for Cisco. It may have occurred in the past, but it is happening right now. Ah, good stuff. The Deep Space Nine crew prepare to launch a rescue effort as the Cardassians head toward the wormhole as well. Kira comes up with the idea of moving the whole station from the planet to the mouth of the wormhole. Dax and O'Brien figure out how to do it and get it to work. Kira heads off to make preparations, and she shows some really good management skills here too. She assigns people to do work based on their strengths. She's even able to motivate Bashir by calling back his desire to be a hero out on the frontier. You too, Doc. Time to be a hero. Yes, sir. On their way to the runabout, Odo opens up a little. Apparently he was found in the Denorius belt. He's faked his way, passing himself off as a humanoid his whole life. He's anxious to get to the wormhole, thinking there might be some answers to his past in it. They get to the runabout and it's a race. Ducat ends up going through the wormhole before the runabout does, and the wormhole closes up tight. O'Brien and his team do some star trekking, and through the miracles of some kind of physics, and of course arguing with the computer, successfully move the station. This changes the whole paradigm for the station. Now, instead of just supporting Bajor and their entry into the Federation, they're at the mouth of what will become a hub of intergalactic trade and travel. With Dukat having disappeared through the wormhole, three Cardassian warships show up at the new location of Deep Space Nine. They prep for battle. Kira calls for shields, but O'Brien says there are none. They used everything to move the station. This is when we get to see the resistance fighter in Kira. She fires at them right away. She sets up a sensor screen to make it look like they're armed to the teeth. She stands right up to them. You want a war? I'll give you one. And O'Brien? O'Brien very much approves. So if you want a war, I'll give you one. Major, remind me never to get into a game of Rolad and Wild Draw with you. This leads to a Cardassian assault on the station. The ruse doesn't hold for very long, and the station takes very heavy damage. Suddenly, the wormhole opens up. The Rio Grande, with Cisco, comes out with Ducat's warship in tow. The Cardassians stand down, and Cisco returns to Deep Space Nine. He assesses the damage, finds his son, and embraces him. The Enterprise returns, and he meets with Picard once again. After his experience with the Prophets, Cisco lets Picard know that he's all in as commander of this station. He's moved past his doubts, and he's certain this is where he belongs. Picard wishes him luck and takes off. Life begins to settle in on the station. Kira lays down the rules to Quark. If you don't take that hand off my hip, you'll never be able to raise a glass with it again. Finally, we hear the bustle of a station that's about to become the political center of a galaxy. I said it last episode, and it's important to be forthcoming. This is my favorite Star Trek series. It develops, over time, into a monumental feat of television for its time. It does, however, 
takes some time to find its footing, to, to grow its beard, as they say. This episode is really from the time before Trek knew how to put together an exciting pilot. It's absolutely a step up from Encounter at Farpoint, but, but it's still a difficult watch. I don't know if it's that the writers didn't really know what they wanted from the characters yet, or, or if the actors hadn't really wrapped their heads around them. I'm inclined to believe the writers had a pretty good idea, but many of the acting choices are, well, questionable. I'm acting! I don't think Terry Farrell quite knows what to think of Dax yet, and Nana Visitor is still feeling her way around this character. One of the things, one of the many things that makes DS9 great, in my opinion, is the characters. So we move past this, but, but there's, some, there's some rough moments in this episode. Avery Brooks, on the other hand, wow, absolutely incredible. He's got swagger, confidence. I love the sing-song quality of some of his line delivery. It's mesmerizing. The effects are, well, I think they were going for a cinematic feel, which they get close to in Caretaker, but they don't quite hit it here. Some 35 plus years after its first airing, many of the effects are, they're just distracting and not good. The story, though, the story is great. It really sets the table for the world of Deep Space Nine. It distinguishes itself from TNG and introduces us to the complex spiritual and political world of the Bajorans. All in all, good episode that has the promise for an exciting future. Command codes verified. We get a close and personal look at Benjamin Sisko, commander of the station and leader for this series. Kira gives us a glimpse of who she is, but I think it's safe to say that she is one of the most complex women in Star Trek to this point. Sisko nails it. He leads with experience. Experience that I, I don't know he's earned or should really have. His ability to understand the societal, the cultural needs of a space station as compared to a starship is uncanny. This really is similar to like, I don't know, an, an assistant manager, or deputy director type in the field being promoted to the corporate office to run an entire division, but the division that no one really seems to want and isn't even located within driving distance from the actual corporate building. Having never commanded a starship on his own, he has the grace and ability to execute that would make you assume he's had this experience. Early on, he's on the scene with his people. In separate instances, he's walking the Gemba with O'Brien and then Kira. This engenders trust and respect between both parties. He gets his hands dirty alongside the people he leads. This is invaluable when walking into a confrontational, potentially hostile situation. He demonstrates he's just as invested in the mission as he's asking everyone else to be. He sees the need to create community and leverages existing resources by exercising his negotiating skills. In a way, he's set himself up as being a master negotiator in that, in his first encounter with Quark, a proud Ferengi. He successfully convinces him to stay on board, open a business, and lead the community on the promenade. And finally, I appreciate his ability to meet people where they're at. Watch as he meets different players, Kira, Quark, Opaka, Dukat. Depending on the interaction, he either matches their tone or counters in a way that brings them together. He shows the ability to get his point across clearly without always having to swing a hammer. He's got a huge mess to clean up, and the stakes are very high with the discovery of the wormhole. He'll have tremendous opportunity to not only demonstrate his leadership abilities, but to develop and hone them as well. Then there's Kira, the Bajoran attache from the provisional government and Cisco's first officer. She's a resistance fighter, born and bred. She shows no fear and eagerly stands up to confrontation. 
But I am just a Bajoran who's been fighting a hopeless cause against the Cardassians all her life. Her defining moment in this episode comes when the Cardassian warships approach the station. She sees opportunity and leans on the strengths of those around her. She and O'Brien create some distractions to bluff their way through the situation, but but when it all comes crashing down, once she once she knows they've lost, she starts to throw in the towel. How many companies how many companies could have could have could have been saved if their leaders could have just done this, right? Admit defeat, come back and fight another day. Of course, Cisco emerges from the wormhole and stops her from giving the surrender order, but she had steeled herself and she was ready. Deep Space Nine. Not the Star Trek we know from the original series or the next generation. This episode did a lot of work to separate it from its predecessors. Very successfully, I'd say. From a leadership perspective, we're going to have opportunities with both Cisco and Kira we won't have with uh, other series. They don't get to fly off into a new challenge each episode. So... What did I miss? What do you agree with? Any takeaways or aha moments for you? Let me know. You can find me across all the social medias at Jeff T. Aiken, A-K-I-N. I'd love to hear from you. And next week, we dive back to the past. And what will be a challenging series to watch through the lens of uh, leadership development, we're going to dive into discovery. Until then, ex astris scientia. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Oh, 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 o